Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Jason Jimenez here. So glad to be with you guys here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. I'm excited because today, as we jump into Acts chapter 2, the title is The Start of the Church Age. And if you know the story, this is when the church began. This is when Peter stood up boldly, filled and powered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel in front of a diverse group of diaspora Jews who were there celebrating the day of Pentecost. So I'm excited to, again, verse by verse, jump into this particular chapter as we continue our study in the book of Acts. Now, if you've missed Acts chapter one, you can always go to standstrongministries.org or wherever you get your audio for the podcast that's available for you. So check things out. Of course, my notes are on our website at standstrongministries.org. And as I mentioned in the previous podcast, and if you missed it, we are now filming this. We are now providing audio format, and I'm putting it on YouTube. You can find that at Jason P. Jimenez, or you can just go Jason Jimenez Pastor, Jason Jimenez Author, Jason Jimenez Apologist, whatever, and you see my channel there. And under the playlist, Stand Strong in the Word Podcast, that is available Uh, now for you guys. So if you like watching video, take advantage of that and tell your friends, tell your small groups, tell your church, because we want here on the podcast to be a place where you can come study the scriptures. And there's really no time limit. Sometimes a podcast is 30 minutes, depending on what we're covering. But a chapter like uh, Acts chapter two could probably take us up to an hour. But the idea behind it is to give you an exegetical way of examining the scriptures in proper hermeneutic. When we take an objective look, an historical look, a theological look, when we look at a grammatical look, and we dive into uh, the scriptures, and again, with no time restraints, we just do whatever is necessary to teach people just like you the Word of God. And because there's so much, even as I went through Acts chapter 2, again, I've preached on this many times, I've used it in my devotion life, I've memorized many verses in this particular passage, But man, as I went through it again, it just blows my mind to see at this point in time, historically speaking, and and again, in in, in context of the church starting, imagining just the the feel of what it would have been like. So I'm excited to be diving into this. I hope you are as well. So if you have a, a Bible available, grab your Bible. If not, just listen to this. Or if you're watching, we're glad that you are now tuning in to watch our videos. Again, share them with your friends, put them out there on social media. I greatly appreciate that because I want people to know God's word. Our tagline for our ministry, Stand Strong Ministries, is to reinforce biblical truth. You can't reinforce God's truth if you don't teach his word. And so that's one of the reasons why um, we are teaching through the Bible to teach people God's infallible word. So let's dive right in now. And there's going to be different phases as we go along, and I'll be providing some commentary So the first thing we're going to be seeing in Acts chapter 2 is verses 1 through 4, speaking in tongues. So if you have a Bible, like I said, grab it, and let me read you the first introduction words that Luke gives here in Acts chapter 2. He says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So one of the things that we see right off the bat as Luke records here, this was on the day of Pentecost. Okay, so let me put things in proper context. Pentecost, also known as the festival or the feast of weeks, according to Deuteronomy 16 verse 10, this took place 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover, according to Leviticus 23, 15 through 16. So this is 50 days removed since the resurrection. Now we know that Jesus had spent up to 40 days with his disciples since he rose from the dead. So this was in, this is less than two weeks since Christ ascended to heaven that they are gathered and they're awaiting the power of the Holy Spirit. Now it's also important to mention that this celebration during this time 
was the first wheat harvest, Exodus 34, 22, and number, Numbers 28, 26. And it was one of the three feasts that required all the Jewish men to attend. So this celebration, as they came about the first wheat harvest, it was also a time to reflect on Moses receiving the law. So put that in perspective, because remember, Peter's going to stand up and he's going to proclaim the gospel. And, he, and, and as they are reflecting on how God used the prophet Moses, the father of the law, Peter's about to show them how Jesus is the Messiah who fulfilled the law. And just like God gave Moses the law, God sent his son, Jesus. And so we're going to see this transformative work, this transformative message being conveyed here on the day of Pentecost. Now, remember, Pentecost will then go from what they were traditionally doing. And again, Jews still do it to this very day, Orthodox Jews. But it will forever be recognized as the start of the church when the Holy Spirit filled the apostles to start it. And this is a fulfillment. This is what Jesus gave him in the upper room. Of course, he was preparing up to that point. And this is what Jesus gave in the Great Commission before he ascended to heaven. Now, notice here in verse 2, it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. In the Greek, it's noe. It means this, 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 this breath, this rapid uh, movement of wind that filled the entire place where they were sitting. This is interesting because when you look throughout Scripture, particularly in, in, in Ezekiel 37, 9 through 14, wind is a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Jewish Scriptures and bears the, the movement and the power of God working in His creation. So just like He's moving throughout creation, He's moving in this particular room with the apostles. Now, remember, in the Hebrew as well as in the Greek, the meaning of spirit is wind or breath. And so we see it being captured here by Luke. In verse 3, it says, Now this, these divided tongues of fire appeared uh, around or rested on each one of the people in the room, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in other tongues. That just literally means they were speaking in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, in the Greek, that word utterance means to speak with focus, to proclaim. This is very important because as I've looked at this passage along with looking at particular passages from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, many people will take this as a sign of sardonic laughter, spasmatic jerks, and uncontrollable movements of the Spirit that you can't contain because it's so amazing and so powerful and it's chaotic and there's confusion. There's people making these quote unquote utterances of different tongues and there's no interpretation and nobody knows what they're saying. It's just very weird. This is not the situation that we see right off the bat. We see the Holy Spirit moving as wind that's, that's consistent to a symbol of the Holy Spirit in action in the Jewish scriptures. We see they're speaking in, in languages that were known and we also see that these utterances were with focus and they were proclaiming a certain specific unified message. Now, the, the, the term here again, as we're talking about, talking about earlier with wind, notice Luke also mentions in this encountership, there was fire. And when you look with these tongues of fire, those upon them, and you go throughout the Jewish scriptures uh, in, in the Old Testament, you, it represents the divine presence of God. You see that in, in Ezekiel, excuse me, in Exodus 3, 2 through 6. It also represents, when you, when you talk about fire, it also represents judgment to come, that God was going to be sending his judgment on his people in Isaiah 29, verse 6. Remember, of course, Moses in the burning bush when God appeared to him in Exodus 3, as I mentioned, you know, and, and also when he guided them in Exodus 13, the pillar of fire at night. And of course, in Exodus 19, verse 18, God came in a pillar of fire and he rested on the mountain. And what is what are we seeing now, this picture of the Holy Spirit resting on the apostles to proclaim a message, just like when God would speak to Moses to proclaim that to the people. You see the presence of this holy, all-consuming God through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who's going to do a great work. And already he's filling them the Holy Spirit's filling them to speak these languages of various tribes and nations. And this was a sign. When you go back to Luke chapter 3, 16 through 17, this was a sign. This, this act of the Holy Spirit is 
a turning point for the apostles in the start of the church age. I mean, a lot of commentaries when I was reading were putting in perspective. When you go back and you remember the call in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abram, who became Abraham, or when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and when Joshua was called to lead Israel into the promised land from Joshua chapter 3 to chapter 5, this incident that we see here in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost is on par of those. And this is a transition. Remember, I told you the book of Acts is a transition between the Gospels into the letters to the churches because it gives us the account of the Holy Spirit moving the Word of God through the lives, in this case that we're going to see today through Peter and others, to spread the gospel message to tribes and nations. So the presence of the Holy Spirit was not restricting it just to the Jews. This gospel message was going to be taken to the whole entire world. And so just like God used Abraham, just like God used Moses, and just like God used Joshua, God is now going to use the 12 apostles. Now, one commentary writes this, the filling with the Holy Spirit is separate from the baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit's baptism occurs once for each believer at the moment of salvation, but the Spirit's filling may occur not only at salvation, but also on a number of occasions after salvation. You see that in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, verse 31, Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Acts chapter 7, verse 55, and so on and so forth, end quote. So this is important because, again, in my study and having conversations with people through the years, people tend to use Acts chapter 2 and say, this is when the disciples or the apostles in this case were saved. And this is when they became apostles because they were finally saved because the Holy Spirit came upon them in that way where they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. No, that had already occurred. They were already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This was an empowering of the Holy Spirit in a special in a unique way. So that's important to see that in verses one through four. Now let's go to Acts chapter two and read verses five through 13. And this is number two, the controversy now over them speaking in tongues. So Luke records here in verse five, it says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But the others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. All right, so notice that we're told on the day of Pentecost in verse 1, now in verse 5, they're dwelling in Jerusalem, these Jews, and they're devout men from every nation under heaven. So there's thousands of Jews from the Mediterranean world uh, where Jerusalem, of course, celebrated Passover. And so they're gathering there in Pentecost. So here's a map of the regions where all of these devout Jews were coming from. And there was a multitude, it says here in verse six, that came together and they were bewildered. That means they were astonished. They were in dismay. They were confused coming from all these different parts, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate um, Passover, or excuse me, Pentecost. And yet they're speaking their language. Now, remember many Jews of the diaspora, they knew Greek. Greek was a second language to them while others spoke Aramaic to the East. And so what shocked them was that these Galilean Jews spoke each one of their native languages in their dialect. We see this later in Acts chapter 10, verse 46, Acts 19, verse 6, and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, several commentators, I found this to be interesting, said that this was a miraculous act, which was a reversal of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. So remember when God dispel them in confusion. That's where the, we get the word babble. You know, they're babbling. There was a lot of confusion there. They didn't understand each other's native tongue. And so then they corralled around the, the, the people who spoke their languages. 
and it caused them to spread out all into the world because that's what God had originally told them. But Nimrod gathered them together, you know, in the modern day Iraq to build this tower to basically in some way access God or, or to, to, to try to erect a ziggurat of great proportion and great significance as a worship symbol of, of, of idolatry or, or polytheism, whatever the case may be. But here, again, as we're seeing the picture of what God is doing through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is reflective of how God called from Abraham to Moses to Joshua. But we're also now seeing a significant thing where it is a reversal, it is a clear message. In order to do that, God is giving through the power of the Holy Spirit this ability to speak their dialect, their languages to people. Now, the NIV Study Bible breaks down all of these different regions, which I show you in the in the areas of Asia Minor and beyond, of where all of these different people are coming from. So this is very significant. Now, if you do see here in verse 12, it says, and all were amazed and they were perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And some, of course, were mocking. So there are people who are very intrigued as to how these Galilean Jews were able to speak these praises of God uh, to these other diaspora Jews that are scattered from all around who are coming here, again, to worship. But they're respecting their tongues, saying, this is amazing. We've never seen something like this. Well, of course, you're always going to have those hecklers. And you're going to have people who are saying, no, they're drunk with wine. So now, as we look, we look now to our third, this is setting the stage. So now as we go into our third aspect in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 14 through 36, we're going to see that Peter takes the opportunity now as the Holy Spirit's come upon them and they're proclaiming various different praises of God to all of these different Jews. And of course, there's controversy now, as I said, people are saying, oh, they're drunk, that sort of thing. Peter then takes opportunity to stand up and to preach the gospel to this diverse group of people. So that's where we pick things up here. Let me read, starting in verse 14. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares it, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they, will, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above the signs on the earth, below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your, your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, Brothers, I may not say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was poured out this 
He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Man, so there's a lot there that Peter lays out in front of thousands of Jews gathered for Pentecost. So when you go back to verses 14 through 15, right when Peter stands up with the 11 and he lifts up his voice to give this address, that literally means as he's giving his first recorded sermon, it was a kerygma. That means this is Peter giving a herald message to the Jews. So this is very common. They just didn't know what he was going to say and the way in which he was going to say it. And so he's preaching to this crowd about these recent events. So if you look at verses 14 through 21, what does Peter do? He gives a breakdown of the death, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus in verses 22 through 36. So he's teaching them about repentance and baptism in verse 37 through 40. So he's giving, saying, look, Christ came, he ascended, he gave a calling, you are to repent and you are to be baptized because Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Now, as he is about to give that message, he says, and by the way, many of you in this crowd are thinking that these people are talking in such a way because they're drunk. First off, again, these utterances were very focused. They're proclaiming specific messages that did not contradict one another. They're speaking to different people in the crowd simultaneously that were able to understand verbatim what they were saying and were astonished by that. And Peter says, we are restricted to break fast during the festival until 10 a.m. He says it's only the third hour. So there's no way they're breaking the fast and they're getting drunk. And of course, you and I know there's no way that they would be wasted like this and be so sophisticated in speaking different dialects to people that understood what they're saying. So here in verse 16 and following what, what Peter does at this point is he brings in a minor prophet named Joel and Peter gives context to the deliverance and the restoration of what the Holy Spirit is doing and the gift of salvation and the coming of the church. So again, Holy Spirit, salvation, and the coming of the church. And he does this by quoting Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And what he's doing is he's saying, listen, what you're seeing take place right now is a partial fulfillment of the new covenant according to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. And this will last until the coming day of the Lord, which of course, right now as you and I are, are studying the book of Acts, we don't know when that's going to happen. And he uses this word about prophecy because just like the apostles are doing something amazing right now in front of the diaspora Jews, he's saying that Joel said that many Jews are going to be doing amazing things. And not only that, but even far beyond us. Because remember, this is also significant because in the midst of the crowd, there was a movement of Jewish people who believed that prophets were no longer speaking for God. Some believe that John the Baptist was a prophet. That was hard to debate. But since then, nobody was realizing if there was any other prophets. Because remember, before even John the Baptist, there had been nobody speaking for God. But Peter adds this phrase to Joel to tell the audience that the Holy Spirit will cause many to have prophetic vision. So even far beyond just the office of a prophet, like again, Elijah, like, you know, Isaiah, or like Nathan, you know, was to David. And even here, as I, as I read, um, he, the, uh, Peter even mentions David as a prophet, but he's saying that there are going to be fathers and their children. They're going to have prophetic visions and dreams. This is according to first Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. And when Peter uses this phrase wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, what he's saying is God has saved his people. And, he, and they will experience greater things and they will share these wonders of heaven. So up to this point with Jesus, he was revealing those truths to people, how you can have a relationship and through Christ, we now have access. And now as the third person of the Trinity is going to come, come upon us like he's doing with the apostles to this point, the wonderful things, wonders themselves will be taking place through God's people who are sanctified and set apart to do his great work. And they're going to proclaim his truth around the world. And so in the text of Joel, 
um, in, in, in Joel 2, they were reflective of, of plagues, like in Exodus 7, verse 3. But what, what Peter's taking from Joel is, again, in, in, in different dispensational times of God enacting different things. Again, here's my law, abide by them, they, they, but they break it, and then God's judgment comes upon them, and then they ask for forgiveness, and then God restores them, and it kind of goes in that cyclical formation. Joel was talking about these, these plagues to come, but what Peter's doing is he's taking that and saying God's dispensation here is saving people. And so he's proclaiming this message of Jesus Christ to the audience, which is another prophetic word that was given to Joel in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, is that not only will God's judgment come upon you, but deliverance will come as well. And Peter's saying that deliverance is through Jesus Christ. He took the judgment of our sins on the cross. Of course, he says, you crucified him. But you can repent and you can have newness of life. And that's why he says, men of Israel, hear these, hear these words in verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested. That means, look, this Jesus of Nazareth who was publicly crucified and you guys are hearing now two months later rose from the dead. He's saying this man's attested, meaning he's known. He's revealed to be genuine. He's a source of knowledge. And he's saying to you guys that God has given you this man who has these supernatural forces, these, these works of power and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And as you yourselves know, so he's actually saying many of you guys actually know these reports and there's no denying it, that, that, the, that Jesus of Nazareth was not just some poor peasant, some poor uh, carpenter, but he was a miracle worker, and more than that, he was the Messiah. Luke eighteen thirty seven, Acts three six, Acts four ten. That Peter would later proclaim about the power of Jesus to heal, and so he's proving that the Son of God, uh, through miracles, did these things, and the spoken word of God was fulfilled through him. So he's making that case because in the Jewish world, okay, if God's not really speaking through prophets, how do you explain the works that Jesus did? particularly the, G, the G, Jesus of Nazareth, whose mother was Mary, who grew up as a Nazarene, who grew up in Galilee, who was a Galilean, who was this poor peasant, but he did amazing things. So he's saying God did these things through him. And, and this is, this is a, these are fascinating words because it, in Greek, it's Peter stressing the significance of God, how he used Jesus like he did prophets, but even more so because he fulfilled what the prophets proclaimed that would come in the Messiah. So all these things that Peter's communicating to them, he's saying Jesus did these things perfectly to fulfill God's will. Jesus repeatedly prophesied that he would die and that he would rise again. He says, so not only was he sinless, not only did he fulfill the things that God had called him to do, fulfilling the law, he didn't break the law. There was no guilt or flaw in him, but he also predicted his death and he also predicted his resurrection. How do you explain these things? And then he says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered, meaning he handed up according to the definite appointed plan and foreknowledge. That word foreknowledge means to know prior beforehand. So the foreknowledge of God beforehand, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he says, even though Jesus did all these things and God used him, he was clearly the prophet, the one to come, the Messiah, you killed him. But he says, but it was God who raised him from the dead according to his preordained plan. You see that in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, where we talk about this eternal decree. So salvation through Christ was preordained by God the Father. When Adam and Eve were created, God knew they would sin. They sin freely. And God and his free love and his perfect love gave a way out someday to cover those sins. So God's divine power was there because you can't thwart against it, Job 42 verse 2. But God's divine power also raised Christ from the dead because death could not keep Jesus down. Death was not strong enough. Sin is not strong enough. God's love conquers all things. And so Peter's reminding them, so in your wonderful wisdom, supposedly, right? Of course, Peter, or excuse me, Paul would later say, the wisdom of man is foolishness to God in 1 Corinthians 1. But he says, you guys attempted to do all these things with Rome, with their power. 
to end and silence the, the teachings of Jesus, but you can't keep him down. He rose from the dead. And he, then, he's, then he in, in, in injects David here in verse 25 uh, to verse 28, and he's bringing together two separate Psalms here, and he's matching them up. Now, this is important because this was often a practice, and still even today in Orthodox and Orthodox Judaism, is a practice that was acceptable to where you take uh, different portions of the Jewish scriptures. And in this case, what Peter's doing is he's now bringing David in to make the case even stronger than he's been making. And he's saying, look, when you look at Psalm 16, he's giving them text. In Psalm 110, these were uh, enigmatic uh, and contained various interpretations that explains the workings of Jesus. And of course, if you look at Psalm 110 and Psalm 16, you're thinking, okay, this is written by King David. And he's saying here in verse 29, now, brothers, may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's saying, look, our king prophesied about the Messiah to come, but even as great and powerful as a man he was, he died. He was buried because he himself was not the Messiah. And what Peter's doing here is he's partially applying, again, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, to the life of David, who was a mighty king. But nevertheless, even though he's a great warrior, he was a mortal man. And he was buried, as we're told in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, and Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 16. So he's saying in verse 30 here, Peter's saying, but being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about his resurrection. So now he's saying, listen, do you guys realize when you're looking at Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, and now he's giving Psalm 132 verse 11, he's showing them that David forecasted. He, he in some ways, again, there was a foreshadowing there, that through his line in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16 in Psalm 16, verse 10, the Messiah would come from his line, from his royal line, from, his, from the Davidic line that we, that we refer to. But, but more so than that, David understood the messianic prophecy to some extent. And so David believed that God's promise was going to come from his ancestral line. And so what now Peter's doing, which is so significant, because we're thinking this is the poor Jewish or Jewish fisherman from Galilee, and yet he is profoundly breaking down uh, the scriptures by in, and by taking uh, all these different psalms and applying them from, again, the patriarchs, particularly King David here, into an, uh, an educated audience of different Jews from all over the world, explaining to them how Christ is the Messiah. And so he says here in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So he's saying, look, Christ fulfilled his task perfectly, and he was raised up by God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, Paul would refer to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And he, sees being, he says in, in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So now he says, listen, Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he fulfilled prophecy, he was killed, but he rose again. Jesus is exalted at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Of course, Paul would later refer to that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And he says, this promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said would come after his ascension to heaven, which again, Paul would later say in Galatians 3, verse 14. Are you also understanding later to come when Paul, who would be converted in Acts chapter 9, and then he would write, the first epistle, the first letter to the church in Galatia around 484, about 8047, 8049. I believe that when you look at this sermon, this kerygma, this herald by Peter on the day of Pentecost, and it was recorded here, we have it recorded by Luke. I think it was also written down and it was disseminated in the early church, particularly after 3,000 souls this day came to Christ. They were recorded, remember, they're oratorical leaders, and you had a lot of brilliant people who were able to, to dictate and make sure that there was an account of this recorded, that, that later on, Paul gets a handle of this, and he goes through this, and I believe that he uses this sermon that was given by Peter through the power of the Holy Spirit, and throughout his letters, 
he refers to different portions of this sermon given by Peter, hence why I kept giving these references of Scripture that are found later in in these uh, letters that Paul himself wrote to various different churches. Now, verse 34 says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if you recall, this was something that Jesus cited in Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44, when he was quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1, to validate his truth that he himself is the Messiah. Notice that Peter references, again, another psalm written by David to prove to the crowd that Jesus is the exalted Messiah. Jesus used this passage, and now Peter uses this passage to prove to them, to validate that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And he uses this phrase, they ascended into the heavens. Remember, David wasn't the one who ascended to the heavens. And yet David was the one that wrote this in Psalm 110 verse 1. David died. David wasn't resurrected from the dead. So who was he referring to? He was referring to the Messiah when he said, my Lord. And again, Paul will later in his Antioch address in Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 41, he would elaborate in greater detail that Jesus Christ is Lord by linking 2 Samuel chapter 7, 16 through 16, Psalm 2, verse 7, Isaiah 55, verse 3, and Psalm 16, verse 10. And then in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. So he lays down... All of this proved to validate Jesus Christ the Messiah. He says, and guess what? You crucified him. That's how Peter ends his sermon, by stating that the Old Testament prophets, they bore witness that Jesus Christ is Lord. And with that truth, their wicked act to have him crucified is on them. Notice the expository's Bible commentary of the New Testament put it like this, quote, the title Lord was also proclaimed Christologically in Jewish circles with evident intent to apply to Jesus all that was said of God in the Old Testament. But Lord came to have particular uh, uh, relevance to the church's witness to Gentiles just as Messiah was more relevant to the Jewish world. So in Acts, Luke reports the proclamation of Jesus as the Christ before Jewish audiences both in Palestine and among the diaspora, whereas Paul, in his letters to Gentile churches, generally uses Christ as a proper name and proclaims Christ Jesus as the Lord, end quote. So that's just important to understand the proper context and why they use certain titles when they did, because it appealed to certain audiences. Now let's look at the final, leading towards the final, the second to the last point here in Acts chapter 2, in Acts 2, 37 through 41. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, this phrase here, cut to the heart, it means to strike, to be stunned. After hearing all that Peter had laid out, they were blown away about hearing the gospel and about who Jesus truly was and how many of them did nothing about it or acted in participation to have him crucified. So many of these Jews were suddenly overtaken by conviction of their sin and the, recon- the recognition that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who they rejected. And so they're looking to Peter saying, what shall we do then? Notice Peter says, repent. In the Greek, he's saying, change your outlook, change your heart, reverse your direction, no longer reject the Messiah. But notice this, but rather be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That means in the Greek, it's kind of a weird way of putting it when you look at it in English. It says, in view of the fact, basically what I've told you now respond to receive the forgiveness of your sins since you recognize that you are a sinner and what you did was wrong. He says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a couple things here. Number one, notice he says, repent and then be baptized. 
So Peter was following the orders of Jesus to be baptized. So here we see Jesus, or excuse me, here we see Peter give the first gospel presentation. And then you see the first act of him telling now the people to respond to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, uh, in, in the Holy Trinity name and identify uh, with the death and resurrection, because we know that's the symbol. You're not saved through baptism. You're saved and therefore baptized, which is a public announcement, right, of what Christ has done for us, according to Romans 6, verse 4, that when we are in the water, we're buried. And when you come out, you're you're representing the newness of life when Christ rose from the dead. So this is simply a public ordinance of celebration that recognizes the new life in Christ. You see that in Romans 4, verses 1 through 17, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now, the other thing we see that's significant here is to be baptized, which they never done before, and now they are. And again, before that was John the Baptist, but he was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But now that Christ came, gave up his life, rose from the dead, and the Holy Spirit came, people are now are going to be doing this as, again, as a, as a sacrament, as a way to say this is not just ritualistic, but this is, this is, this is a sign of what Christ has done for us. So this is very significant. But he also says, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's saying the moment a person confesses Christ as Lord and Savior, this is Romans 10, 9 and 10, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're told that in Romans 8, 9 through 11, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. And this was something that Jesus promised in the upper room in John 14, verses 16 through 17. So again, this is important. I believe again, as I gave all these citations, Paul exegetically, if you will, look through the sermon of Peter and he expounded on it theologically in, in a lot of his letters in years to come. And then he says here in verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children. This is going back to Joel chapter two. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. So the gospel, Peter saying to them, is not limited to the Jews only, but to the rest of the world. And the apostle's job was to spread the good news of Jesus to the known world, even in the midst of persecution. And he notice he says, because God calls to himself these people. This is something that Jesus said in John 6, 44. And we know, according to the prophet Jonah in Jonah 2, verse 9, that make, the Bible makes clear that salvation is a gift from the Lord. And so Peter is reminding the people that. But it isn't just for people who, you know, um, this is not just for the Jewish people, I should say. It's for people who repent. And then the saying here, he says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So we don't know all the words that Peter said. Luke here just gives a condensed version. And this was a way to make it more memorable for people to recite because remember they're oratical and their ways of learning. But he says this phrase here, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Again, this is a phrase that Paul would later introduce to the church of Philippi in Philippians chapter two. And then he says in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. So it was customary uh, to keep records of conversions. And of course here we're, we're told that they recorded even their baptized baptisms um, in the time of Luke as he was recording this. And this is, this is important because we we want we we oftentimes miss out on saying okay well logistically how did they process all of these people to be baptized that day? Well, we have to understand that there are plenty of Jewish what are, are known as mikvahs. These are large baptistry facilities for purification. So what they're doing is they're taking these people to their purification areas, and they're baptizing them. We're told three thousand souls. This is significant again because this had never been done. And think about how the Jewish people in Jerusalem felt about that. These are areas to be purified. And, and so what they're doing is saying, I want to be completely, totally cleansed from top to bottom. I'm, I am being baptized in this water to symbolize Jesus being buried and rising from the dead. Before that, in the upper room, Peter's like, cleanse my whole body. But now they understand the fulfillment of Christ. I want to be baptized because I believe in his death burial and resurrection. I believe that the old man has passed. Behold, all new things have come. And then we transition to the last point, the fifth point, And that is now after Peter preaches the gospel and people repent or are, and are baptized, he tells them to live out the gospel. And we see that in verses 42 through 47 here, Luke says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching into the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, into the prayers. And all came upon every soul 
And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So you see some amazing things now where Peter proclaims the gospel. Thousands of people come to Christ. And now we see them devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That means partnership to the breaking of bread. So the early church relies on the teachings that the apostles were giving them, which was not much, but they're taking the Jewish scriptures and some of the tradition and they're revealing Christ in it. And I believe now they're taking a lot of what Peter said here and they're expounding it to the people. And they're taking the teachings of Jesus that were taught them through the years as he did his public ministry and they're expounding on them. And they're showing them Old Testament passages where Jesus Christ fulfilled it. This is in John 15, verse 26, John 16, verse 13. The Holy Spirit's revealing these things to the people and teaching them. And the word fellowship, as I said here, means partnership. That means that they're gathering with other Jews who are committing their lives to Christ. So there was this unity. And then when it says they're breaking a bread, this is not only a reference to the communion, according to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and 24, but it also conveys the idea of them telling of special feasts among the Jews. So what they're doing was they were taking opportunity within their, you know, in, in Judaism and the traditions as Jews themselves and how they live life and, and they fellowshiped. And now they're looking at ways of how they can bring the, the, the church together over these mills. So this is very important. And you just see the intimacy and the love here. Verse 43, and all came upon every soul and many wonders. This is the Greek word tarata, which means there are these miracles that are evoking awe. So again, we don't know, they don't, Luke here doesn't elaborate on what kind of wonders. And notice he also says signs, which means in the Greek events of special meaning. So between these miracles are evoking awe, whether it be people being raised from the dead, people healed from leprosy, but also these signs that were, were driving to special meaning. It said they were being done through the apostles. So every apostle was performing miracles and as they were performing miracles, they were also speaking prophecy over the people. And these miraculous acts, what they were all an emphasis of was of Christ. And that's what Hebrews 2 verses 3 through 4 tells us. These acts are done to point to Christ. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12, Paul writes, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And that's exactly what we see and what was happening as a result of this in verse 44. And all who believe were together and had, and had all things in common. So what we see here is that the community of believers were very strong and they began to spread the message and the unity to other people in Jerusalem and beyond. And we're told here in verse 45, they sold their possessions and belongings and they distributed. Now, this is not a socialistic ideology. This in no way, shape, or form means redistribution of wealth, um, as a socialist would put it. What this is essentially saying is the early church rallied together to meet the various spiritual and physical needs that were within the newfound faith community. And this charity was given voluntarily, wasn't forced by the government, wasn't forced by the, the, the way of the prophets or the way of the apostles you know, ink company or anything like that. They gave generously. And the Bible says here, and day by day, they're attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes and receiving food with the glad and generous hearts, praising God. So the, the Christian Jews now, they weren't going to the temple to offer sacrifices anymore, but they went to the center of Israel's worship to announce the Messiah that he had come and they were observing the daily prayers. So they're using as one, yes, in, in conjunction of how they're raised and saying Christ has fulfilled these things and we are now the temple and we're going to come and we're going to gather and we're going to pray and worship him as he taught us to pray and where they're praying now in the spirit. But we're also going to use this as an opportunity to lead people to saving faith. And that's why numbers day by day were growing 
because the, the, the apostles were taking the opportunity now to convert people to the gospel while they're there doing their daily prayers at the temple. So what, what a great opportunity they had to witness to people and show them that the Messiah had already come when this whole time people were desperate and hopeless because they were lost. So that's it, my friends. That's Acts chapter two. I know that's a lot. So I hope and pray that that just encourage you in many ways. And one, as I close out this podcast, is to challenge you of how is the Holy Spirit using you? We see the Holy Spirit using Peter in in an amazing way. And I want to ask you, Christians who are listening to this right now, you're indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20. We know that the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lies within you, Romans 8, 11. But my question to you is how is the empowerment, how are you allowing the filling of the Holy Spirit to use you in a significant way, not just in your local church, but around you in your sphere of influence? Because God is not limited. He is not limited by you or by me. God will use anything and everything to his, to, for his glory. So God's not restricted. And so I just pray that as you went through Acts chapter two, that one thing that you got from it is saying, I don't want to limit God. I don't want to limit the third person, the Trinity. I want the filling of the Holy Spirit, as the Bible says in Ephesians 5 verse 18. So I can do extraordinary things for the glory of God. And the last thing to make mention is you saw as people came to Christ, notice what they did. They were there for each other. So I hope and pray that as a follower of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're not just not limiting, right? You don't want to just, you don't want to limit God. But I also encourage you, my friend, not to limit how God can use you with the resources that he's given you. Don't be greedy. Don't be selfish. If there are people that are in need and you know, and you know that God has given you the, op, you know, the ability and the resources to meet that need, take that opportunity to meet that need and see how, how God can use you to minister to the needs of people around you. So my friends, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for watching. Until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.